This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism, a study in nature and development of spiritual consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. Second half of Part 2, Chapter 3 The Purification of the Self. An admirable example of the mystic's attitude towards the soul-destroying division of interests, the natural but hopeless human struggle to make the best of both worlds, which sucks at its transcendental vitality, occurs in St. Teresa's purgative period. In her case, this war between the real and the superficial self extended over many years, running side by side with the state of illumination and a fully developed contemplative life. At last it was brought to an end by a second conversion, which unified her scattered interests, and set her firmly and forever on the unitive way. The virile strength of Teresa's character, which afterwards contributed to the greatness of her achievement, opposed the invading transcendental consciousness, disputed every inch of territory, resisted every demand made upon it by the growing spiritual self. Bit by bit it was conquered, the sphere of her deeper life enlarged, until the moment came in which she surrendered, once for all, to her true destiny. During the years of inward stress, of penance and growing knowledge of the infinite, which she spent in the convent of the Incarnation, and which accompanied this slow remaking of character, Teresa's only self-indulgence, as it seems a sufficiently innocent one, was talking to the friends who came down from Avila to the convent parlour, and spoke to her through the grill. Her confessors, unaccustomed to the education of mystical genius, saw nothing incompatible between this practice and the pursuit of a high contemplative life. But as her transcendental consciousness, her states of arising grew stronger, Teresa felt more and more the distracting influence of these glimpses of the outer world. They were a drain upon the energy which ought to be wholly given to that new, deep, more real life which she felt stirring within her, and which could only hope to achieve its mighty destiny by complete concentration upon the business in hand. No genius can afford to dissipate his energies, the mystic genius least of all. Teresa knew that so long as she retained these personal satisfactions, her life had more than one focus. She was not whole-hearted in her surrender to the absolute. But though her inward voices, her deepest instincts, urged her to give them up, for years she felt herself incapable of such a sacrifice. It was round the question of their retention or surrender that the decisive battle of her life was fought. The devil, says her great Augustinian eulogist, Frey Louis de Lyon, in his vivid account of these long interior struggles, put before her those persons most sympathetic by nature, and God came, and in the midst of the conversation discovered himself aggrieved and sorrowful. The devil delighted in the conversation and pastime, but when she turned her back on them and betook herself to prayer, God redoubled the delight and favours, as if to show her how false was the lure which charmed her at the grating, and that his sweetness was the veritable sweetness, so that these two inclinations warred with each other in the breast of this blessed woman, and the authors who inspired them each did his utmost to inflame her most, and the oratory blotted out what the grating wrote, 
and at times the grating vanquished and diminished the good fruit produced by prayer, causing agony and grief, which disquieted and perplexed her soul. For though she was resolved to belong entirely to God, she knew not how to shake herself free from the world, and at times she persuaded herself that she could enjoy both, which ended mostly, as she says, in complete enjoyment of neither. For the amusements of the locutorio were embittered and turned into wormwood by the memory of the secret and sweet intimacy with God, and in the same way when she retired to be with God and commenced to speak with Him, the affections and thoughts which she carried with her from the grating took possession of her. Compare with these violent oscillations between the superficial and mystical consciousness, characteristic of Teresa's strong volitional nature, which only came to rest after psychic convulsions, which left no corner of its being unexplored. The symbolic act of renunciation under which Antoinette Bourignon's interior self vanquished the surface intelligence and asserted its supremacy. Teresa must give up her passionate delight in human friendship. Antoinette, never much tempted in that direction, must give up her last penny. What society was to Teresa's generous, energetic nature, prudence was to the temperamentally shrewd and narrow Antoinette, a distraction, a check on the development of the all-demanding transcendental genius, an unconquered relic of the lower life. Many a mystic, however, has found the perfection of detachment to be consistent with a far less drastic renunciation of external things than that which these women felt to be essential to their peace. The test, as we have seen, does not lie in the nature of the things which are retained, but in the reaction which they stimulate in the self. Absolute poverty is thine, says Toller, when thou canst not remember whether anybody has ever owed thee or been indebted to thee for anything just as all things will be forgotten by thee in the last journey of death. Poverty, in this sense, may be consistent with the habitual and automatic use of luxuries which the abstracted self never even perceives. Thus we are told that St. Bernard was reproached by his enemies with the inconsistency of preaching evangelical poverty whilst making his journey from place to place on a magnificently caparisoned mule, which had been lent to him by the Cliniac monks. He expressed great contrition, but said that he had never noticed what it was that he rode upon. Sometimes the very activity which one's self has rejected as an impediment becomes for another the channel of spiritual perception. I have mentioned the curé d'art, who, among other inhibitions, refused to allow himself to smell a rose. Yet St. Francis preached to the flowers, and ordered a plot to be set aside for their cultivation when the convent garden was made, in order that all who saw them might remember the eternal sweetness. So, too, we are told of his spiritual daughter, St. Ducheline, that out of doors one day with her sisters she heard a bird's note. What a lovely song, she said, and the song drew her straightway to God. Did they bring her a flower, its beauty had a like effect. To look on trees, water, and flowers, says St. Teresa of her own beginnings of contemplation, helped her to recollect the presence of God. Here we are reminded of Plato. The true order of going is to use the beauties of earth as steps along which one mounts upwards for the sake of that other beauty. This, too, is the true order of holy poverty, the selfless use, not the selfish abuse, of lovely and natural things. 
To say that some have fallen short of this difficult ideal, and taken refuge in mere abnegation, is but to say that ascetism is a human, not a superhuman art, and is subject to the frailty of the creature. But on the whole, these excesses are mainly found amongst saintly types who have not exhibited true mystic intuition. This intuition, entailing as it does communion with intensest life, gives to its possessors a sweet sanity, a delicate balance, which guards them, as a rule, from such conceptions of chastity as that of the youthful saint who shut himself in a cupboard for fear he should see his mother pass by, from the obedience which identifies the voice of the director with the voice of God, from detachment such as that exhibited by the blessed Angela Foligno, who, though a true mystic, viewed with almost murderous satisfaction the deaths of relatives who were impediments. The detachment of the mystic is just a restoration to the liberty in which the soul was made. It is a state of joyous humility in which he cries, Nought I am, nought I have, nought I lack. To have arrived at this is to have escaped from the tyranny of selfhood, to be initiated into the purer air of that universe which knows but one rule of action, that which was laid down once for all by St. Augustine, when he said, in the most memorable and misquoted of epigrams, Love, and do what you like. 2. Mortification By mortification, I have said, is to be understood the positive aspect of purification, the remaking in relation to reality of the permanent elements of character. These elements, so far, have subserved the interests of the old self, worked for it in the world of sense. Now they must be adjusted to the needs of the new self, and to the transcendent world in which it moves. Their focal point is the old self, the natural man, and his self-regarding instincts and desires. The object of mortification is to kill that old self, break up his egoistic attachments and cravings, in order that the higher centre, the new man, may live and breathe. As St. Teresa discovered when she tried to reconcile the claims of worldly friendships and contemplation, one or other must go. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Who hinders thee more, says Thomas Akempis, than the unmortified affections of thy own heart? If we were perfectly dead unto ourselves, and not entangled within our own breasts, then should we be able to taste divine things, and to have some experience of heavenly contemplation. In psychological language, the process of mortification is the process of setting up new paths of neural discharge. That is to say, the mystic life has got to express itself in action, and for this new paths must be cut and new habits formed, all in spite of the new self's enthusiasm against the grain, resulting in a complete sublimation of personality. The energy which wells up incessantly in every living being must abandon the old road of least resistance and discharge itself in a new and more difficult way. In the terms of the hormic psychology, the carnation drive of the psyche must be concentrated on new objectives, and the old paths, left to themselves, must fade and die. When they are dead, and the new life has triumphed, mortification is at an end. The mystics always know when this moment comes. Often an inner voice then warns them to lay their active penances aside. Since the greater and stronger the mystic, the stronger and more stubborn his character tends to be, this change of life and turning of energy from the old and easy channels 
to the new is often a stormy matter. It is a period of actual battle between the inharmonious elements of the self, its lower and higher springs of action, of toil, fatigue, bitter suffering, and many disappointments. Nevertheless, in spite of its etymological associations, the object of mortification is not death, but life, the production of health and strength, the health and strength of the human consciousness, viewed subspecie eternitatis. In the truest death of all created things, the sweetest and most natural life is hidden. This dying, says Toller again, has many degrees, and so has this life. A man might die a thousand deaths in one day, and find at once a joyful life corresponding to each of them. This is as it must be. God cannot deny or refuse this to death. The stronger the death, the more powerful and thorough is the corresponding life. The more intimate the death, the more inward is the life. Each life brings strength, and strengthens to a harder death. When a man dies to a scornful word, bearing it in God's name, or to some inclination inward or outward, acting or not acting against his own will, be it in love or grief, in word or act, in going or staying, if he denies his desires of taste or sight, or makes no excuses when wrongfully accused, or anything else, whatever it may be, to which he has not yet died, it is harder at first to one who is unaccustomed to it and unmortified than to him who is mortified. A great life makes reply to him who dies in earnest even in the least things, a life which strengthens him immediately to die a greater death, a death so long and strong that it seems to him hereafter more joyful, good and pleasant to die than to live, for he finds life in death and light shining in darkness. No more than detachment, then, is mortification an end in itself. It is a process, an education directed towards the production of a definite kind of efficiency, the adjustment of human nature to the demands of its new life. Severe and to the outside apparently unmeaning, like their physical parallels, the exercises of the gymnasium. Its disciplines, faithfully accepted, do release the self from the pull of the lower nature, establish it on new levels of freedom and power. Mortification, says the Benedictine contemplative Augustine Baker, tends to subject the body to the spirit and the spirit to God. And this it does by crossing the inclinations of sense, which are quite contrary to those of the divine spirit. By such crossing and afflicting of the body, self-love and self-will, the poison of our spirits, are abated, and in time in a sort destroyed. And instead of them, they enter into the soul the divine love and divine will, and take possession thereof. This transformation accomplished, mortification may end, and often does, with startling abruptness. After a martyrdom which lasted sixteen years, says Suso, speaking as usual in the third person of his own experience, on a certain Whit Sunday, a heavenly messenger appeared to him, and ordered him in God's name to continue it no more. He at once ceased, and threw all the instruments of his sufferings, irons, nails, hair-shirt, etc., into a river. From this time onward, austerities of this sort had no part in Suso's life. The Franco-Flemish mystic who wrote, and the English contemplative who translated, The Mirror of Simple Souls, have between them described and explained in bold and accurate language 
the conditions under which the soul is enabled to abandon that hard service of the virtues, which has absorbed it during the purgative way. The statement of the French book is direct and uncompromising, well calculated to startle timid piety. "'Virtues, I take leave of you for evermore,' exclaimed the soul. "'Now shall mine heart be more free and more in peace than it hath been before. "'I wot well your service is too travailous. "'Some time I laid mine heart in you without any dissevering. "'You wot well this. "'I was in all things to you obedient. "'Oh, I was then your servant, but now I am delivered out of your thraldom.' To this astounding utterance, the English translator has added a singularly illuminating gloss. I am stirred here, he says, to say more to the matter as thus. First, when a soul giveth her to perfection, she laboureth busily day and night to get virtues, by counsel of reason, and striveth with vices at every thought, at every word and deed that she perceiveth cometh of them, and busily searcheth vices, then to destroy. Thus the virtues be mistresses, and every virtue maketh her to war with its contrary, the which be vices. Many sharp pains and bitterness of conscience feeleth the soul in this war, but so long one may bite on the bitter bark of the nut, that at last he shall come to the sweet kernel. Right so, ghostly to understand, it fareth by these souls that come be to peace. They have so long striven with vices and wrought by virtues, that they be come to the nut kernel, that is, to the love of God, which is sweetness. And when the soul hath deeply tasted this love, so that this love of God worketh, and hath his usages in her soul, then the soul is wondrous light and gladsome. Then is she mistress and lady over the virtues, for she hath them all within herself. And then this soul taketh leave of virtues, as of the thraldom and painful travail of them that she had before. And now she is lady and sovereign, and they be subjects. Jacopone da Todi speaks to the same effect. La guerra è terminata della virtù pataglia, della mente travaglia, cosa nulla contende. Thus sent Catherine of Genoa, after a penitential period of four years, during which she was haunted by a constant sense of sin, and occupied by incessant mortifications found that all thought of such mortifications was in an instant taken from her mind, in such a manner that, had she even wished to continue such mortifications, she would have been unable to do so. The sight of her sins was now taken from her mind, so that henceforth she did not catch a glimpse of them. It was as though they had all been cast into the depths of the sea. In other words, the new and higher centre of consciousness, finally established, asserted itself and annihilated the old. La guerra e terminata. All the energy of a strong nature flows freely in the new channels, and mortification ceases mechanically to be possible to the now unified, sublimated, or regenerated self. Mortification takes its name from the reiterated statement of all ascetic writers that the senses, or body of desire, with the cravings which are excited by different aspects of the phenomenal world, must be mortified or killed, which is, of course, a description of psychological necessities from their special point of view. All those self-regarding instincts, so ingrained that they have become automatic, which impel the self to choose the more comfortable part, are seen by the awakened intuition of the embryo mystic 
as gross infringements of the law of love. This is the travail that a man behoveth, to draw out his heart and his mind from the fleshly love and the liking of all earthly creatures, from vain thoughts and from fleshly imaginations, and out from the love and the vicious feeling of himself, that his soul should find no rest in no fleshly thought nor earthly affection. The rule of poverty must be applied to the temper of normal consciousness, as well as to the tastes and possessions of the self. Under this tonic influence, real life will thrive, unreal life will wither and die. This mortifying process is necessary, not because the legitimate exercise of the senses is opposed to divine reality, but because those senses have usurped a place beyond their station, become the focus of energy, steadily drained the vitality of the self. The dogs have taken the children's meat. The senses have grown stronger than their masters, monopolized the field of perception, dominated an organism which was made for greater activities, and built up those barriers of individuality, which must be done away if true personality is to be achieved, and with it some share in the boundless life of the one. It is thanks to this wrong distribution of energy, this sedulous feeding of the cuckoo in the nest, that in order to approach the absolute, mystics must withdraw from everything, even themselves. The soul is plunged in utter ignorance when she supposes that she can attain to the higher state of union with God before she casts away the desire of all things, natural and supernatural, which she may possess, says St. John of the Cross, because the distance between them and that which takes place in the state of pure transformation in God is infinite. Again, until the desires be lulled to sleep by the mortification of sensuality, and sensuality itself be mortified in them, so that it shall war against the spirit no more, the soul cannot go forth in perfect liberty to union with the beloved. The death of selfhood, in its narrow individualistic sense, is, then, the primary object of mortification. All the twisted elements of character which foster the existence of this unreal yet complex creature are to be pruned away. Then, as with the trees of the forest, so with the spirit of man, strong new branches will spring into being, grow towards air and light. I live, yet not I, is to be the declaration of the mystic who has endured this bodily death. The self that is to be will live upon a plane where her own prejudices and preferences are so uninteresting as to be imperceptible. She must be weaned from these nursery toys, and weaning is a disagreeable process. The mystic, however, undertakes it as a rule without reluctance, pushed by his vivid consciousness of imperfection, his intuition of a more perfect state, necessary to the fulfilment of his love. Often his entrance upon the torments of the purgative way, his taking up of the spiritual or material instruments of mortification, resembles an ardour and abruptness that heroic plunge into purgatory of the newly dead when it perceives itself in the light of love divine, which is transcribed in the treatise of St. Catherine of Genoa as its nearest equivalent. As she, plunged in the divine furnace of purifying love, was united to the object of her love, and satisfied with all he wrought in her, so she understood it to be with the souls in purgatory. This divine furnace of purifying love demands on the ardent soul a complete self-surrender and voluntary turning from all impurity, a humility of the most far-reaching kind, 
and this means the deliberate embrace of active suffering, a self-discipline in dreadful tasks, as gold in the refiner's fire, so burning of love into a soul truly taken or vices purgeth. Detachment may be a counsel of prudence, a practical result of seeing the true values of things. But the pain of mortification is seized as a splendid opportunity, a love token timidly offered by the awakened spirit to that all-demanding lover from whom St. Catherine of Siena heard the terrible words, I, fire, the acceptor of sacrifices, ravishing away from them their darkness, give the light. Suffering is the ancient law of love, says the eternal wisdom to Suso. There is no quest without pain. There is no lover who is not also a martyr. Hence it is inevitable that he who would love so high a thing as wisdom should sometimes suffer hindrances and griefs. The mystics have a profound conviction that creation, becoming transcendence, is a painful process at the best. Those who are Christians point to the passion of Christ as a proof that the cosmic journey to perfection, the path of the eternal wisdom, follows of necessity the way of the cross. That law of the inner life which sounds so fantastic and yet is so bitterly true, no progress without pain, asserts itself. It declares that birth pangs must be endured in the spiritual as well as in the material world, that adequate training must always hurt the athlete. Hence the mystic's quest of the absolute drives them to an eager and heroic union with the reality of suffering as well as with the reality of joy. This divine necessity of pain, this necessary sharing in the travail of a world of becoming, is beautifully described by Toller in one of those internal conversations between the contemplative soul and its God, which abound in the works of the mystics, and are familiar to all readers of The Imitation of Christ. A man once thought, says Toller, that God drew some men even by pleasant paths, while other were drawn by the path of pain. Our Lord answered him thus, what think ye can be pleasanter or nobler than to be made most like unto me? That is by suffering. Mark, to whom was ever offered such a troubled life as to me? And in whom can I better work in accordance with my true nobility than in those who are most like me? They are the men who suffer. Learn that my divine nature never worked so nobly in human nature as by suffering. And because suffering is so efficacious, it is sent out of great love. I understand the weakness of human nature at all times, and out of love and righteousness I lay no heavier load on man than he can bear. The crown must be firmly pressed down that is to bud and blossom in the eternal presence of my heavenly Father. He who desires to be wholly immersed in the fathomless sea of my Godhead must also be deeply immersed in the deep sea of bitter sorrow. I am exalted far above all things, and work supernatural and wonderful works in myself. The deeper and more supernaturally a man crushes himself beneath all things, the more supernaturally will he be drawn far above all things. Pain, therefore, the mystics always welcome, and often caught, sometimes in the crudely physical form which Suso describes so vividly and horribly in the sixteenth chapter of his life more frequently in those refinements of torture which a sensitive spirit can extract from loneliness, injustice, misunderstanding. Above all, from deliberate contact with the repulsive accidents of life. 
it would seem from a collation of the evidence that the typical mystical temperament is by nature highly fastidious. Its passionate apprehension of spiritual beauty, its intuitive perception of divine harmony, is counterbalanced by an instinctive loathing of ugliness, a shrinking from the disharmonies of squalor and disease. Often its ideal of refinement is far beyond the contemporary standards of decency, a circumstance which is alone enough to provide ample opportunity of wretchedness. This extreme sensitiveness, which forms part of the normal psychophysical makeup of the mystic, as it often does of the equally highly strung artistic type, is one of the first things to be seized upon by the awakened self as a disciplinary instrument. Then humility's axiom, naught is too low for love, is forced to bear the less lovely gloss, naught must be too disgusting. Two reasons at once appear for this. One is the contempt for phenomena, nasty as well as nice, the longing to be free from all the fetters of sense, which often goes with a passion for invisible things. Those mystics to whom the attractions of earth are only illusion are inconsistent if they attribute a greater reality to the revolting and squalid incidents of life. St. Francis did but carry his own principles to their logical conclusion when he insisted that the vermin were as much his brothers as the birds. Real detachment means the death of preferences of all kinds, even of those which seem to other men the very proofs of virtue and fine taste. The second reason is nobler. It is bound up with that principle of self-surrender, which is the mainspring of the mystic life. To the contemplative mind, which is keenly conscious of unity and multiplicity, of gods in the world, all disinterested service is service of the absolute which he loves, and the harder it is, the more opposed to his self-regarding and aesthetic instincts, the more nearly it approaches his ideal. The point to which he aspires, though he does not always know it, is that in which all disharmony, all appearance of vileness, is resolved in the concrete reality which he calls the love of God. Then, he feels dimly, everything will be seen under the aspect of a cosmic and charitable beauty, exhibiting through the woof of corruption the web of eternal life. It is told of St. Francis of Assisi, in whom the love of lovely things was always paramount, how he forced himself to visit the lepers whose sight and smell disgusted him, how he served them and even kissed them. Then, as he departed, in very truth that which had aforetime been bitter unto him, to wit the sight and touch of lepers, now changed into sweetness. For, as he confessed, the sight of lepers had been so grievous unto him that he had been minded to avoid not only seeing them, but even going nigh their dwelling. And if at any time he chanced to pass their abodes or to see them, albeit he were moved by compassion to do them an alms through another person, yet always would he turn aside his face stopping his nostrils with his hand. But through the grace of God he became so intimate a friend of the lepers, that even as he recorded in his will, he did sojourn with them and did humbly serve them. Also, after his great renunciation of all property, he, once a prosperous young man who had been dainty in his father's home, accustomed himself to take a bowl and bake scraps of food from door to door. And here too, as in the case of the lepers, that which at first seemed revolting became to him sweet. And when he would have eaten that medley of various meats, says the legend, at first he shrank back, 
but that he had never been used willingly even to see, much less to eat, such scraps. At length, conquering himself, he began to eat, and it seemed to him that in eating no rich syrup had he ever tasted aught so delightsome. The object, then, of this self-discipline is, like the object of all purgation, freedom. Freedom from the fetters of the senses, the remora of desire, from the results of environment and worldly education, from pride and prejudice, preferences and distaste, from selfhood in every form. Its effect is a sharp reaction to the joy of self-conquest. The very act that had once caused in the enchained self a movement of loathing becomes not merely indifferent, but an occasion of happiness. So Marjorie Kemby had great mourning and sorrowing if she might not kiss a leper when she met them in the way for the love of our Lord, which was all contrary to her disposition in the years of her youth and prosperity, for then she abhorred them most. I spare the sensitive reader a detailed account of the loathsome ordeals by which St. Catherine Genoa and Madame Guyon strove to cure themselves of squeamishness and acquire this liberty of spirit. They, like St. Francis, St. Elizabeth of Hungary, and countless other seekers for the real, sought out and served with humility and love the sick and the unclean, deliberately associated themselves with life in its meanest forms, compelled themselves to contact with the most revolting substances, and mortified the senses by the traditional ascetic expedient of deliberately opposing all, even their most natural and harmless inclinations. In the first four years after she received the sweet wound from her lord, says the life of St. Catherine Genoa, she made great penances, so that all her senses were mortified. And first, so soon as she perceived that her nature desired anything at once she deprived it thereof, and did so that it should receive all those things that it abhorred. She wore harsh hair, ate no meat nor any other thing that she liked, ate no fruit, neither fresh nor dried, and she lived greatly submitted to all persons, and always sought to do all those things which were contrary to her own will, in such a way that she was always inclined to do more promptly the will of others than her own. And while she worked such and so many mortifications of all her senses, it was several times asked of her, Why do you do this? And she answered, I do not know, but I feel myself drawn inwardly to do this, and I think it is God's will. St. Ignatius Loyola, in the world a highly bred Spanish gentleman of refined personal habits, found in those habits an excellent opportunity of mortification. As he was somewhat nice about the arrangement of his hair, as was the fashion of those days, and became him not ill. He allowed it to grow naturally, and neither combed it nor trimmed it, nor wore any head-covering by day or night. For the same reason he did not pare his finger or toenails, for on these points he had been fastidious to an extreme. Madame Guyon, a delicate girl of the leisured class, accustomed to the ordinary comforts of her station, characteristically chose the most crude and immoderate forms of mortification in her efforts towards the acquirement of indifference. But the peculiar psychic constitution which afterwards showed itself in the forms of automatism and clairvoyance seems to have produced a partial anaesthesia. Although I had a very delicate body, the instruments of penitence tore my flesh without, as it seemed to me, causing pain. I wore girdles of hair and of sharp iron. I often held wormwood in my mouth. 
If I walked, I put stones in my shoes. These things, my God, thou didst first inspire me to do, in order that I might be deprived even of the most innocent satisfactions. In the earlier stages of their education, a constant aguerre contra, even in apparently indifferent things, seems essential to the mystics, to the point is reached at which the changes and chances of mortal life are accepted with a true indifference, and do not trouble the life of the soul. This established ascendancy of the interior man, the transcendental consciousness, over sensitive nature, the self in its reactions to the ups and downs and manifold illusions of daily life, is the very object of purgation. It is, then, almost impossible that any mystic, whatever his religion, character, or race, should escape its battles. For none at the beginning of their growth are in a position to dispense with good offices. Neoplatonists and Mohammedans, no less than the Christian ascetics, are acquainted with the purgative way. All realize the first law of spiritual alchemy, that you must tame the green lion before you give him wings. Thus in Attar's allegory of the valleys, the valley of self-stripping and renunciation comes first. So too Al-Ghazali, the Persian contemplative, says of the period immediately following his acceptance of the principles of Sufism and consequent renunciation of property, I went to Syria, where I remained more than two years, without any other object than that of living in seclusion and solitude, conquering my desires, struggling with my passions, striving to purify my soul, to perfect my character, and to prepare my heart to meditate upon God. At the end of this period of pure purgation, circumstances forced him to return to the world, much to his regret, since he had not yet attained to the perfect ecstatic state, unless it were in one or two isolated moments. Such gleams of ecstatic vision, distributed through the later stages of purification, seem to be normal features of mystical development. Increasing control of the lower centres, of the surface intelligence and its scattered desires, permits the emergence of the transcendental perceptions. We have seen that Fox in his early stages displayed just such an alternation between the light and shade of the mystic way. So too did that least ascetic of visionaries, Jacob Boehm. Finding within myself a powerful contrarium, namely the desires that belong to the flesh and blood, he says, I began to fight a hard battle against my corrupted nature, and with the aid of God I made up my mind to overcome the inherited evil will, to break it, and to enter wholly into the love of God. This, however, was not possible for me to accomplish, but I stood firmly by my earnest resolution, and fought a hard battle with myself. Now while I was wrestling and battling, being aided by God, a wonderful light arose within my soul. It was a light entirely foreign to my unruly nature, but in it I recognized the true nature of God and man, and the relation existing between them, a thing which heretofore I had never understood, and for which I would never have sought. In these words, Bowen bridges the gap between purgation and illumination, showing these two states, or ways, as coexisting and complementary one to another, the light and dark sides of a developing mystic consciousness. As a fact, they do often exist side by side in the individual experience, and any treatment which exhibits them as sharply and completely separated 
may be convenient for purposes of study, but becomes at best diagrammatic if considered as a representation of the mystic life. The mystical consciousness, as we have seen, belongs, from the psychological point of view, to that mobile or unstable type in which the artistic temperament also finds a place. It sways easily between the extremes of pleasure and pain in its gropings after transcendental reality. It often attains for a moment to heights in which it is not able to rest, is often flung from some rapturous vision of the perfect to the deeps of contrition and despair. The mystics have a vivid metaphor by which to describe that alternation between the onset and the absence of the joyous transcendental consciousness, which forms, as it were, the characteristic intermediate stage between the bitter struggles of pure purgation and the peace and radiance of the illuminative life. They call it ludus amoris, the game of love which God plays with the desirous soul. It is the game of chess, says St. Teresa, in which game humility is the queen, without whom none can checkmate the divine king. Here, says Martinson, God plays a blessed game with the soul. The game of love is a reflection in consciousness of that state of struggle, oscillation and unrest which precedes the first unification of the self. It ceases when this has taken place and the new level of reality has been attained. Thus St. Catherine of Siena, that inspired psychologist, was told in ecstasy, with the souls who have arrived at perfection, I play no more the game of love, which consists in leaving and returning again to the soul, though thou must understand that it is not, properly speaking, I, the immovable God, who thus elude them, but rather the sentiment that my charity gives them of me. In other terms, it is the imperfectly developed spiritual perception which becomes tired and fails, throwing the self back into the darkness and aridity whence it has emerged. So we are told of Ruhlman Merswan that after the period of harsh physical mortification which succeeded his conversion came a year of delirious joy alternating with the most bitter physical and moral sufferings. It is, he says, the game of love which the Lord plays with his poor sinful creature. Memories of all his old sins still drove him to exaggerated penances, morbid temptations, made me so ill that I feared I should lose my reason. These psychic storms reacted upon the physical organism. He had a paralytic seizure, lost the use of his lower limbs, and believed himself to be at the point of death. When he was at his worst, however, and all hope seemed at an end, an inward voice told him to rise from his bed. He obeyed and found himself cured. Ecstasies were frequent during the whole of this period. In these moments of exaltation, he felt his mind to be irradiated by a new light, so that he knew intuitively the direction which his life was bound to take, and recognized the inevitable and salutary nature of his trials. God showed himself by turns harsh and gentle. To each access of misery succeeded the rapture of supernatural grace. In this intermittent style, torn by these constant fluctuations between depression and delight, did Merswin, in whom the psychic instability of the artistic and mystic types is present in excess, pass through the purgative and illuminated states. They appear to have coexisted in his consciousness, first one and then the other, emerging and taking control. 
hence he did not attain the peaceful condition which is characteristic of full illumination and normally closes the first mystic life, but passed direct from these violent alternations of mystical pleasure and mystical pain to the state which he calls the school of suffering love. This, as we shall see when we come to its consideration, is strictly analogous to that which other mystics have called the dark night of the soul, and opens the second mystic life, or unitive way. Such prolonged coexistence of alternating pain and pleasure states in the developing soul, such delay in the attainment of equilibrium, is not infrequent, and must be taken into account in all analyses of the mystic type. Though it is convenient for the purposes of study to practice a certain dissection and treat as separate states which are, in the living subject, closely intertwined, we should constantly remind ourselves that such a proceeding is artificial. The struggle of the self to disentangle itself from illusion and attain the absolute is a life struggle. Hence it will and must exhibit the freedom and originality of life, will as a process obey artistic rather than scientific laws. It will sway now to the light, and now to the shade of experience. Its oscillations will sometimes be great, sometimes small. Mood and environment, inspiration and information, will all play their part. There are in this struggle three factors. 1. The unchanging light of eternal reality, that pure being which ever shines and naught shall ever dim. 2. The web of illusion, here thick, there thin, which hems in, confuses, and allures the sentient self. 3. That self, always changing, moving, struggling, always, in fact, becoming, alive in every fibre, related at once to the unreal and to the real, and, with its growth in true being, ever more conscious of the contrast between them. In the ever-shifting relations between these three factors, the consequent energy engendered, the work done, we may find a cause of the innumerable forms of stress and travail, which are called in the objective form the purgative way. One only of the three is constant, the absolute to which the soul aspires. Though all else may fluctuate, that goal is changeless, that beauty so old and so new, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, which is the one of Plotinus, the all of Eckhart and St. John of the Cross the eternal wisdom of Suso, the unplumbed abyss of Rusburic, the pure love of St. Catherine Genoa, awaits yesterday, today, and forever the opening of its creature's eyes. In the moment of conversion those eyes were opened for an instant, obtained as it were a dazzling and unforgettable glimpse of the uncreated light. They must learn to stay open, to look steadfastly into the eyes of love, so that in the beautiful imagery of the mystics, the faithful servant may become the secret friend. Then it is, says Boehm, that the divine glimpse and beam of joy ariseth in the soul, being a new eye, in which the dark, fiery soul conceiveth the ends and essence of the divine light. So hard an art is not at once acquired in its perfection. It is in accordance with all that we know of the conditions of development that a partial achievement should come first, bewildering moments of lucidity, splendid glimpses whose brevity is due to the weakness of the newly opened and unpractised eye which looks upon eternity, the yet undisciplined strength of the eye which looks upon time. Such is that play of light and dark, of exaltation and contrition, 
which often bridges the gap between the purgative and the illuminative states. Each by turn takes the field and ousts the other, for these two eyes of the soul of man cannot both perform their work at once. To use another and more domestic metaphor, that divine child which was, in the hour of the mystic conversion, born in the spark of the soul, must learn, like other children, to walk. Though it is true that the spiritual self must never lose its sense of utter dependence on the invisible, yet within that supporting atmosphere, and fed by its gifts, it must find its feet. Each effort to stand brings first a glorious sense of growth, and then a fall. Each fall means another struggle to obtain the difficult balance which comes when infancy is past. There are many eager trials, many hopes, many disappointments. At last, as it seems suddenly, the moment comes. Tottering is over, the muscles have learnt their lesson, they adjust themselves automatically, and the new self suddenly finds itself, it knows not how, standing upright and secure. That is the moment which marks the boundary between the purgative and the illuminative states. The process of this passage of the new or spiritual man from his awakening to the illuminated life has been set out by Jacob Boehm in language which is at once poetic and precise. When Christ the cornerstone, i.e. the divine principle latent in man, stirreth himself in the extinguished image of man in his hearty conversion and repentance, he says, then Virgin Sophia appeareth in the stirring of the Spirit of Christ in the extinguished image, in her virgin's attire before the soul, at which the soul is so amazed and astonished in its uncleanness that all its sins immediately awaken it, and it trembleth before her. For then the judgment passeth upon the sins of the soul, so that it even goeth back in its unworthiness, being ashamed in the presence of its fair love, and entereth into itself, feeling and acknowledging itself utterly unworthy to receive such a jewel. This is understood by those who are of our tribe, and have tasted of this heavenly gift, and by none else. That the noble Sophia draweth near in the essence of the soul, and kisseth it in friendly manner, and tinctureth its dark fire with her rays of love, and shineth through it with her bright and powerful influence. Penetrated with the strong sense and feeling of which, the soul skippeth in its body for great joy, and in the strength of this virgin love exalteth, and praiseth the great God for his blessed gift of grace. I will set down here a short description how it is when the bride thus embraceth the bridegroom, for the consideration of the reader, who perhaps hath not yet been in this wedding chamber. It may be he will be desirous to follow us and to enter into the inner choir, where the soul joineth hands and danceth with Sophia, or the divine wisdom. End of part two, chapter three, the purification of the self.